0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 266 of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is ECO Laboratory, an interview with Karen Weeks and Anna Roberts. You're gonna learn so much in this podcast episode. We're gonna talk about Lyme disease and tick-borne illness testing. We're gonna talk about the benefits of testing your tick. You're gonna learn how Karen Weeks is one of the leaders in the Lyme community who's been involved since the discovery of the bacteria. You're gonna get tips to improve your health and what to do when you're let down by testing for Lyme disease and various other tick-borne illnesses. So without further ado, Karen Weeks and Anna Roberts in ECO Laboratory.
1: Hey, Anna and Karen, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. So um, Anna, can you first say hi to our folks? Hello, everyone. And Karen? Hi. So um, Anna, would you be kind enough to introduce your business to us? Sure. So we,
2: um, we work at a company called Eco Laboratory, and we have been around since 2019. And we primarily started as a tick testing business, but we have uh, worked hard and branched out into serology testing as well for tick-borne diseases. Um, So if you need your tick tested, that's where you send it.
1: So, Cameron, let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, your background. And um, you know, one of the things that Matt and I find really exciting about uh, having recently met you is you're a Lyme pioneer. So, talk to us about um, your background and uh, and how you um, were introduced to ticks and the Lyme world.
3: Okay, so in 1982, I started working at the State Lab Institute in Jamaica Plain, here in Massachusetts, and um, When we first started, it was just, you know, doing the regular, it it was the virology laboratory. So we did, you know, CMV testing, um, herpes testing, that kind of thing. But then in 1981, um, that's when they first isolated um, the um, spirochete from ticks. So we were presented at the virology lab um, with the opportunity to develop an assay and um, work with Dr. Steer and, um, you know, come up with a a good assay for the detection of early Lyme.
1: Okay. So let's pause there for a second, Karen, to give our folks some context. Why don't you first describe what an assay is and why you were developing an assay for this particular bacteria?
3: Okay. So people were getting, um, sick in, um, certain communities and Dr. Steer was working in Lyme, Connecticut, and there were, um, large number of people in one community that they were just getting very sick and it seemed like the same thing. So he started taking blood samples from them and um, he took them over time. And this was before they had a blood test um, for the spirochete. So when we developed the assay, We had um, a lot of serum specimens over a period, a long period of time, and we were able to um, this assay it tests blood, and um, we were able to see, you know, the antibody levels, the different isotypes, IgM, IgG, IgA antibody um, throughout the the disease. Um, So in early Lyme, you have the IgM and the IgA antibody, and then as the disease progresses, you have IgG antibody. Um, so we were able to develop a, a very good assay for early Lyme disease um, with the, the help of Dr. Steer.
1: Okay, so I, now we're really going to the beginning of, uh, of the Lyme um, history, right? I mean, so Al, Alan Steer was, uh, was a professor at Yale University. He gets called uh, by the um, Connecticut Department of Health to determine whether or not this group of people who were showing similar symptoms, largely arthritic symptoms, uh, were in fact part of a cluster of of, um, disease. And um, you fast forward uh, till the early 1980s, actually I graduated high school in 1981, so uh, I guess that may be a significant date uh, in my life. And in 1981, uh, there is um, there is uh, the discovery of this particular bacteria after ticks were dragged here on Long Island. Uh, actually, Dr. Jorge Binashe, uh from Stony Brook University, right around the corner of where Matt and I live, he finds a tick, he looks at the tick, doesn't really understand what he's seeing, so he sends it over to Dr. Bergdoffer, who discovers, or at least it is so argued. Uh, that there is another. There is another theory. But anyway, he allegedly discovers this bacteria. So, talk to us about how that discovery of this bacteria uh, is connected to Dr. Steer's work, and how that then becomes a foundation for the work that you're doing.
3: For the work that I, I did back in 1982. Yes. Oh, okay. Um, well, just to, to let you know, 1982, I was 21 years old. <laughs> and, um, you know, we we were able to isolate this um, spirochete and we were able to find a media um, um, to grow it and, um, you know, make kind of large volumes of this spirochete growing in this media. Um, so when uh, you know, when, when you develop an assay, um, you need to have, you know, the, the antigen, which is, you know, protein from this particular spirochete. Um, so you have to have a lot of it. And, you know, we, we just, we found the Kelly's media, the media that this grows well in. Um, people had tried different, different other types of media, which did not work. Um, but um, the media that we used was called Kelly's media, um, and it has enough um, things in it where the spirochete loves and you know grew. And once we we did that, um, we were able to produce uh, a large number of um, a large volume of antigen to use in our, our serologic assay, and you know that really it it, it helped in um, developing a very good early test, Um, you know, it took a lot of time, you know, things just don't happen overnight. Um, As a matter of fact, it takes months, you know, once you find the media that works, it takes months to grow the spirochete, and then, you know, to figure out how to make the antigen um, to to use in your assay, that also takes, you know, trial and error. Um, So, you know, it, it did take Quite a bit of time, but once we were able to do it, you know, we were, um, it was we were very grateful to Dr. Steer for having, um, you know, the, this whole bank of specimens that we were able to use, um, you know, for our testing purposes.
1: So, just from the standpoint of the foundation of um, Eco Laboratory, uh, you were on the ground floor when this bacteria was discovered to be the um, the reason people were getting sick and getting, you know, getting Lyme disease, and there was no test. The test didn't exist, and you were a part of a group of people, a team of people, who discovered a vehicle for testing for Lyme disease.
3: Yes, that is correct. Um, the, actually, the first test that... Um was used, and it wasn't a very good test, was a, an indirect immunofluorescence assay. Um, and that really was just a, a test for IgG antibody. Um, so from there, um, we were able to develop the antibody capture assay, which you know everybody knows now for Lyme disease, if you're treated early, um, then you don't develop the arthritis um, later on in the infection. So it was very important, especially for this disease, that you um, treat early. Um, and that's why it would, you know, they needed a really good early test. And that's why we, you know, put a lot of time and effort into it. And um, we ended up publishing the the essay um, in the New England Journal. So it was um you know I, I was very grateful at the time, you know, being so young um 21 <laughs> and being involved in this
1: so that is that is really that is really cool it is really yeah. cool that you know you worked on something at that at that very young age it was published in the premier uh, medical journal in the world
3: yes yep and we also went on to um this assay turns out to be the best one used for um csf specimens and I'm not sure anybody tests CSF specimens anymore because um, you know, this assay isn't really used a lot. Um, but when you have neurologic Lyme, sometimes the antibody is not found in the blood, in the serum, um, it goes straight to your um, central nervous system. So the, the test would need to be used, um, you know your spinal fluid, you would need to test that instead of serum. Um, and this test ended up being a very good test to determine whether somebody had the second stage Lyme disease.
1: Okay, so let's, un- let's unpack a couple of things before I um, ask Anna a couple of questions. Um, you, you mentioned uh, that you, had, you, had, you are part of this team of people that had, um, had developed the assay and you gave us uh, three initials, IgM, IgG and IgA. Uh, so talk to us about these antibody tests and um, and talk to us uh, a little bit about each one, but I'd like to em- emphasize the IgA because that's a relatively new term to us.
3: Um, so when you are infected with um, a foreign substance, um, the first antibody that develops is IgM and actually IgA, they both develop around the same time um, and they spike at the same time. Um, What's useful for IgA antibody is that it it doesn't normally come up in, um, for instance, it's not related to like a false positive. You hear people talk about, oh, this could be a false positive. Well, IgM antibody is notorious to being false positive. Why? But if you, yeah. It, and in this case, in Lyme disease, IgM antibody could persist for a long period of time. And it could be a false positive in some assays. But with IgA, if you have both of those antibodies, um, if you're detecting both of them, Um, you can be sure that you are detecting very specific antibodies to this disease. So the IgA will will go up at the same time as as the IgM, but then it drops very quickly. Um, And it's usually a sign that, um, you know, the disease is not um, active It can also, IgA can also increase later on in the infection if you have an active Lyme arthritis um, and that will peak with the IgG later on. Um, So it's also a good indicator um, to detect whether somebody has an active Lyme arthritis case. So IgA I feel is very important um, to include that in your testing process for Lyme disease.
1: All right. So let's, let's unpack this a little bit more. Um, and I, I want you to you know, bring it down to the, to the basics for, you know, for me. Um, so the test that, or the assay and the test that you had participated in developing, um, early on in your career, um, was not a, not a direct test, but it was an antibody test, right? So what you were testing for, was the body's reaction to the invasion of this particular bacteria that you had uh, that you had been studying? That's
3: correct. Yes.
1: And now, when when the this bacteria um, is uh, is spit into the body of someone um, who is bitten by a tick, the immediate reaction of the immune system would be IgM and IgA. Right. And if you have both IgM and IgA at the same time, that means it was a recent infection, correct?
3: That's correct. Yes.
1: Okay. Now you talked to us about how IgM could could result in a false negative. Does, does that mean that it's a false negative? Um, I mean a false positive. Oh, does that yeah. mean it's a false positive because it could have been a past infection and there were just some antibodies that that are discovered in the test, or why 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 could you have a false positive with an IgM when it does not test parallel with an IgA?
3: Well, um, and this goes for any disease, really. IgM, um, the cross-reactivity in the antibody capture can be um, with uh, varicella zoster um, and the flu, um, You know, these, IgM just tends to do that in any infection. It it can be a false positive. That's why a a lot of tests out there for different diseases, they don't have a really good IgM test, Um, whether it's because of the reagents that are used or, uh, you know, it's just not specific enough. IgM is a very tough thing to test for and to be accurate in diagnosing infections.
1: So when you say cross reactivity, what, is, what does that mean? Does it mean you, you have you can have an IgM for Lyme disease, and you can have Lyme disease. Or you can have an IgM for the flu, and it's not clear whether or not the IgM is reacting to one bacteria or to a virus, or what 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 right. does the cross reactivity mean?
3: Yeah, so so you're right when you say that, um, and that's why we felt at my other my former lab Imogen, that. Um, in order to have a really good test for Lyme disease, it was always better to test for more than just one isotype. Um, and, and actually more than one test, we also performed the Western blot. Um, so if the IgM um, appears with IgA or if it appears with IgG, um, then it, the test becomes more specific. And you know, that that's kind of, how we felt at, at Imogen and doing, um, a panel of, you know, four different tests, um, in order to correctly, um, diagnose a patient who had Lyme disease.
1: So where in the immune response to, uh, Lyme disease would IgG surface? And what does that tell you differently than what you would learn when presented with IgM and IgA?
3: Um, in the case of um, our test, the antibody capture, the IgG actually is detectable earlier than a Western blot. Um, a lot of times people will um, use the Western blot. A lot of physicians use the Western blot, um, you know, to detect, um, to be specific in detecting Lyme disease. They, they look for different bands, um, but that's really only because they don't Have the antibody capture test to rely on. So they they rely heavily on a Western blot. Um, Nowadays, you know, and what the CDC recommends is just doing um, a two tier ELISA. So they do an ELISA test, usually just for IgG antibody, and then they do another ELISA test to confirm it, which, you know, doesn't really make much sense to me. Um, But that's what CDC recommends, and that's what the labs are going to do. An ELISA test. Uh, some of the ELISA tests do um, test for IgM but it's not a very specific test and anybody um, could could tell you that any physician if you ask them and an Ig they got an IgG IgM positive back they would say well it could just be cross-reacting you don't put much um, uh, you know you don't really rely on that but that's why you know they'll then want to do a Western blot. And um, the good physicians out there, they they look for specific bands um, because some proteins actually appear before others. It depends on how early, um, you know, this sample was taking in the, the illness. Um,
1: So, Karen, Matt is starting to twitch because he's very anxious that I'm enjoying this this conversation (laughs) with you about him. So I'm going to pivot over and talk with Anna for a couple of seconds. And then then, uh, I I do want to come back to this. And I do want to talk to you about your prior lab as well, because that's an important part of this. But, Anna, let's let's talk about a couple of things. Um, And the first thing I'd like to talk to you about is um, how does it feel to be the daughter of a Lyme pioneer? I mean, uh, how cool was that as a kid growing up? Uh, knowing that your mom uh, was, you know, part of a study that was published in the top medical journal <laughs> in the world when she was 21 years old.
2: Well, as a child, I honestly had no idea. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> really something about this now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is all news to me. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, um no, it was it was cool. I think I feel like it's kind of I don't feel like it kind of, it certainly has kind of like pushed where I went with my career. Um, you know, I, I have been working alongside her since mm-hmm. forever. I, I can remember being in the lab with her, you know, just filling tip boxes and, you know, and all this stuff and working in the mailroom and working in the office. And I feel like this was kind of the career path I was set to have from the get go. Um,
0: so that's kind
1: of yeah. How no, I, well, listen, I mean, you, you would you would fully expect that um, you know coming from your mom's gene pool, and then of course watching her, and you know, um, having the success that she had, and and of course being inspired by a woman, you know, who you know at that time there were probably not many female scientists, and certainly not many that were doing the kind of work your mom was doing. I think that had to be a powerful inspiration for you during your you know your formative years.
2: Oh, absolutely, and and you know, like I said, I think back in the day, they didn't have child labor laws. So I was there (laughs) during, during the startup at Imogen, you know, I was, I was in the back seat in my car seat while they were looking at places to go. So it's just, I've, you know, I've been there with her throughout this whole thing. Um, And, and it was one of those things too, where while she was doing this and I was working with her, it didn't dawn on me that this is where I need to go with my life, you know, so I was, Um, you know, I, I tried going to school for pre-vet and then I decided that wasn't for me. So then I went to school for criminal justice and then that wasn't for me. So then all the while I was sitting here doing this testing and school on the side and then figured out, well, maybe this is what I should be doing. It was right in front of my face the whole time. So then switched gears again and went to school for, for biology. And so, you know, it's just, it was my destiny, I guess.
1: It certainly (laughs) was. I mean, you're, 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 you're the daughter of. Karen Weeks, you yep, have to for, for biology. I don't know, you tried all this other stuff out. And you, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's <was> silly, right? <laughs> yeah, it really is silly. And you look like, you look like a science geek too. I mean, oh, I know we can see you, but you know, I mean, it's, it's just what it Just what the glasses. There, so.
2: That's what it is, right?
1: <laughs> so, so Anna, talk to us about, uh, in all seriousness, um, talk to us about uh, a recent, um, we, we learned from you during a recent conversation that Mm -hmm. you had to become a, you know, a, um, a, um, a consumer of your own product. Uh, right. So why don't you talk a little bit about, you know, the irony of not only being the daughter of Karen Weeks and, um, and having, uh, you know, having had that direction in your life, but also having an incident recently where, your mother's brilliant work resulted in you learning about yourself and keeping yourself healthy.
2: Yeah, I, um, last summer, it, I got very ill. Um, didn't know what it was. We actually had thought that, according to the urgent care doctors out here, that I had cellulitis. Um, so I was being treated for cellulitis and continued to get worse. What I couldn't even move my neck anymore. I, I don't think I have ever been that sick. And, you know, we just got over COVID too. So like, was not that sick with COVID compared to what I had with Lyme. No comparison. Um, So I think I did in total, I did three visits to urgent care. They never figured it out. And then it was so bad that I felt like I had been um, in a bar fight. Like my face hurt. My eye sockets hurt. My head was pounding that on my way to work said, you know what? I think I'm going to swing into the emergency room on my way. So um, pull in there. And luckily, there was a doctor there who saw the signs right away. And she treated me, um, you know, she took blood to test and treated me as if I had Lyme without getting the test results. And she had warned me there that it takes a really long time for test results to come back, like days and days and days. Um, so while we were waiting for those test results to come back, went to work we we took my blood there and we ran it through our test and that same day we knew right away that I had Lyme disease um and not only was it Lyme I also had Borrelia mimotoi which is another spirochete infection um and I was so positive with that that you know with us doing we 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 make our own assays as you know um, so they're LDTs. We were able to take my blood, and that is now our high positive control for our Mia, you know, LDT that we have because that was that strong. Um, so yeah, it, it, and I'm I'm so grateful that that there was one doctor out there who could see what it was, um, and you know, because that could have been terrible with a misdiagnosis like that. <laughs>
1: well, but Karen, talk to us about how rewarding it is. For you as a mom to have been at the ground floor of doing the work that resulted in your daughter having the ability to test for two different bacteria that could have ruined her life, but for your testing and the early intervention that was available to her because of your work?
3: Well, unfortunately, we didn't have the tick. Um, Now, had we seen a tick on, on Anna? we would have tested the tick and and we would have known that it carried um, the spirochete that causes Lyme disease and the spirochete that causes Borrelia miomotoi. When she initially got sick and was not getting better, I mean, she was put on different um, regimens of antibiotics and they, they still did not touch the infection and she got progressively worse um, then she developed a rash. I, I think you left that out, Anna. You developed this rash um, that didn't exactly look like the Lyme disease rash. Yeah, know. we
2: originally we saw it. And we originally thought it was an allergic reaction to. I think it was Bactrim that I was on at the time, because um, yeah. it had started out looking like hives, and like I even took pictures and sent it to my mother-in-law. I'm like these, these are hives, because she gets them all the time. She goes, Yeah, they look. They definitely look like hives. And at the time, I was I was almost done my prescription of Bactrim. Um, so I figured, okay, I'll just take some uh, Benadryl and I, I can power through and I can get to the end of this because my foot, where it had originally started, was starting to look better um, at that time. Um, but Anna, it
1: was, it was the testing that you did in your own lab that mm-hmm. identified what bacteria you were infected with, right? It
2: right. was, and, and it was a probably... Probably about four days after we had done our testing, I had gotten the call from the hospital with my results. Um, So I had told them, you know, oh yep, I already, I already knew I was positive for Lyme, and by the way, I'm also positive for Borrelia because they don't even offer that in their testing
1: panel. All right, so so let's pause there Let's let's pause that because Karen was being really humble before, but I'm not letting her get away with that. (laughs) We uh, one of the things that we old folks can do together is we can call each other out. So, Karen, yes. uh, I'm going to ask the same question again that you that you refused to answer for me. How did it feel as a mom knowing that your daughter was able to be tested for the bacteria that would have made her very sick by the test that you developed? I want I, I'm asking the mom, not the scientist, not the uh, entrepreneur. I'm asking Karen, the mom, how did it feel? I I honestly
3: felt really good that we were able to um, diagnose this infection and not only diagnose, diagnose the Lyme, but also to diagnose the beryllium miyamotoi. We're like, oh my gosh, you have both of these spirochetes floating around in you. And that's why you're so sick, especially miyamotoi causes a lot of um, CNS um, problems, like headaches and um, things like that. So. You know, it felt really good to be able to do that. The only thing, and I'll go back to this, the only thing that felt bad was that we we didn't d- detect it sooner. I didn't want her to have to go through this. Um, you, know, Karen, you know, but for your
1: test, you wouldn't have been able to detect it at all. I mean, that's, not, you know, look, we're not, we're not. I'm not asking you for the perfect scenario. Of course, the perfect scenario is you don't get bitten by a tick in the first place. Or if you do get bitten by a tick. You find the tick biting you. I mean, we're not talking about perfection here. I'm just talking about, despite um, you know not being able to avoid the tick, and despite not being able to find the tick, and despite not being able to test the tick, you were still able to offer a test that gave your daughter the insight that she needed, so that yeah. she wouldn't become chronically ill. That's awesome. Say yes. Yes,
3: <laughs> it is awesome. It really is, and and I'm proud to do that. Uh, I feel very very good about that that fact that I can diagnose infections um, that you know quicker and better than anybody else um, I do feel good about that and it's <laughs> not just for my daughter it would be for for anybody you know I but you it know for awesome. your are child for you own child you just want to hug them and rock them and you know take the pain away and I always feel bad when I can't do that with my kids you know it, when they're in pain I'm in pain um, so that's why I keep going back to darn it, I wish we had gotten this before it got that bad. That's well, all. but you
1: but you did you did get it before she became chronically ill. And thank absolutely. God you did. And that's 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 awesome. I mean, it's absolutely awesome. And unfortunately, one of the biggest challenges that Matt and I see every day, because we interview people every day, is that people are not able to take steps to intervene early enough to prevent themselves become chronically ill. And, the, you know, the testing is 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 not where we need it to be, although I guess it is. It's just not available. Um, and it's not, um, you know, and people are not using you enough, which is why we have you on our podcast, right? Yeah. And we want to talk about your background. We want to talk about how you're a pioneer. We want to talk about how, you know, how you have done some really awesome things. And and it's a real blessing for us to be able to share the story of you having helped your own daughter, who is now also running your lab. So Anna, talk to us about um, about the work you're doing. At the lab, and then I, I do want to pivot back to you, um, Karen, and talk a little bit about your your prior life at Immunogen. Is it Immunogen? Immunogen, yeah. Yeah, but but let me let me talk to Anna a bit about um, how exciting it is for her to do the work that she does um, uh, now running your lab.
2: Well, bef- before we jump into that, just just another comment on the testing that we do. Um, we also save all of our samples when we do this, so like my serum is saved at the lab a lot of our clients request that we test their old samples with their new so we do acute and convalescent testing and you can't get that anywhere else and that also helps paint the picture so you can track you know how people's antibody levels are changing from their past sample that they sent in to a new one it also helps be able to tell you know is it a new infection is it a past infection you know and it just paints a bigger picture
1: all right, so hold on there, hold on there. And, I, and, and we have to let Matt come in because he's dying over there. Um, so let's, let's talk about- Please. Serum. Let's talk about serum and I'll let Matt take over from here. Let's talk about serum and, and what that is and why storing it or keeping it is significant on a healing journey. Um,
2: well, so the serum is part of, um, you know, you, you have your whole blood taken and you can separate out the serum we can separate out the plasma. It it basically it's the type of collection tube that it's taken in, which will dictate whether it's serum or plasma that you're testing for. Um, both of our our tests are are um, validated to run either or. Um, so I think the majority of the stuff we actually do is plasma, um, but we save everything we in our lab. So we have a bio repository there, basically. So when we have certain clients who are tick literate and want to be able to um, you know, track their patients, their clients that they have, and help them, you know, to heal from this, we will run those samples side by side. So we'll, the reports that we send back to them are their current sample they submitted, their most recent past sample that they submitted. And so you can see how those um, antibody levels are changing throughout the course of their treatment.
0: So, I want to, and maybe it's just me, I, I, I want to clarify something on this. So how is that better than working with a lab who doesn't retain your sample from past tests that were done? So for example, I test with lab ABC. They give me my report and they dispose of my specimen. Now I follow up with a test with them a year later and they run that test there at a disadvantage compared to what well, your scenario is, but why? Right. So with your scenario is I test with you, you give me, <clears throat> you give me my results, you hold on to my specimen. A year later, I I send you, uh, you you test me again. Where's the advantage there? Because I still have the report or the results from the initial test. I want to dig a little bit deeper and understand why this is important and how you stand out compared to other people out there in the community.
2: So I should say we we will save the positive test. We'll run it against a previous positive. So if you were negative before, there's really no sense in running it because, right? Um, So it's beneficial to have that when you, a lot of these tests that are run in the, in the labs are, a lot of them are LDTs. Um, and if they're not an LDT, then what you're purchasing is a kit from a company who manufactures these. And there can be inconsistencies from lot to lot. So even if you have your previous test, you would still want your old sample run on the same lot that was manufactured or the same LDT that was, you know, in whatever lab that it's running on. Um, and it, so you can see how similar it is. Um, you know, a, you, you, because of those inconsistencies, you could have a past test, you know, and a current test, and you can't really get that big of a picture from
0: it. Um, and I'm sorry, but what, what, what's an LDT? So you're talking about lots and LDTs. Can you just give us, explain to us what that, what an LDT is and what a lot means and how it's applicable to the testing process?
2: So an LDT is a lab developed test. Um, so that's what we have. The majority of the testing we do in ours is lab developed. So it means Someone like my mom, like Karen, made this test and we validated it in our lab. And, uh, you know, it was approved for use by whichever governing agency you are licensed through. So um, for instance, our Borrelia memotoy, um was approved by the state of Massachusetts and it was also approved by the state of New York. So we could test samples from New York as well. Um, <clears throat> and when you have lot numbers, I'm referring to, um, you know if we went online and decided to purchase a, a line test through I, I, I don't know whatever company would make them they'll send you a kit and you basically just run whatever comes in that kit through the through the mail um but each kit you receive will have a different lot number and and that lot number can basically it's a number that they can trace back so if something were to happen with that test you have a lot number where you can go back and say okay it was this lot that gave us these false results or um, it's, it's basically a tracking purpose, um, as opposed to an LDT.
0: Gotcha. So with these LDTs, for example, you're saying that you can test specimen and then down the road, get something slightly different. So you, you want to retest a positive. If there's a thought of of reinfection down the road, so you can have an accurate comparison side-by-side, because there's a possibility of some sort of flawed results with that initial positive, I think you're saying, is that correct?
2: Yeah, but not just with LDTs that that's the same with with kits that you would receive as well.
0: Karen, I'm a huge fan of Imogen Labs because when I first got sick, it was recommended to me that I test with them because they were better than the traditional two-tier testing I'd get through at the time lab core. And I did it. I did a full tick-borne disease panel and it came highly recommended. And I know you were involved with them and you would kind of touch on this with Rich, but I'm really excited to know what was your role at Imogen and then what happened to them? You know, when, where, where are they standing now?
3: Uh, so Imogen, um, I was one of the founders of Imogen um, and that was um, that was done in 1989 and we developed that, uh, Victor Barardi and I were working at the state lab together and um, we were doing this Lyme antibody capture assay, really good early detection for Lyme disease. And being a state worker, you know, you only have um, so many resources. And one of the things that we requested, um, because once the word got out, everybody was sending their specimens to us at the state, plus it was free testing, you know, the state paid for it. Um, so we got bombarded with specimens. Um, unfortunately, my turnaround time, i it was just myself performing the assay, um, our turnaround time was like three to four weeks, sometimes even longer. And we went to, um, you know, the, the people who determine if you have enough money to hire people, and they, uh, we asked them if we could hire more, more help to help with the testing, and they said, no, we can't provide you with that. So, um, Victor and myself, and there was a, another person. Um, we decided that we're really not doing a, a service, a good service for these people. We, you have, we have a really good assay for early line, but it's taking you know three, four weeks, even longer, to get the, the result. And what good is that? You know, by then you're you're stage four. So we decided we'd go off on our own. Um, and the, the paper was already published and, you know, the state lab already was acknowledged. So, you know, we took our knowledge with us and we developed a company called Imogen. and we were located in Norwood, Massachusetts. And we, our first test was the um, Lyme antibody capture. And we also um, developed our own strips to do the Western blot. And, and then we, we built the, the company up from there. We started adding more tick-borne diseases to our panel of testing. And, you know, before you know it, we're doing Babesia and um, Anaplasma or Lichia, um, you know, and Beryllium miomotoi over time. Um, you know, we just kept adding. And, you know, were quite successful because, you know, nobody else was doing a Lyme antibody caption. Nobody else thought like us. Like Anna was saying, we, we tested the acute and the convalescent together in the same test run. Um, and you, you can get an accurate, um, uh, you know, knowledge of what this pa- patient's antibody levels are doing. Some people, you know, with doxycycline, they'll start it. And then because their stomach hurts or something that they just go off the medication. And then, you know, before long, they're back at the doctor's office and they're sick again. Um, You know, and then the doctor will draw the specimen and send it to Imogen. Imogen will pull the original and test it with the new specimen. And the the antibody level in a person like that, we can see it going up. And, you know, the doctor will get the result and say, oh, did you take your your, doxycycline for the period of time I prescribed. And it usually turns out to be no. Um, and then they go back on it again. So, you know, it, it is helpful to, you know, see antibody levels going up or going down. And, you know, just to add on to what Anna was saying about why we do it is because one is because of the lot numbers, but two, you know, the testing environment can be a little bit different um, something um, or your plates is something that's totally not under your control like you have to buy certain things you have to buy certain reagents um, like plates or conjugate you know we don't make the conjugate we make the antigen Um, so you know those lot numbers can change from um, one day to the next. And in order to get an accurate representation of antibody levels, you need to run them side by side in this, in the same test run. Um, you know, and that's what Imogen did. And the, the doctors loved us. They, you know, we were, we were really busy there. We grew the company um, to the point where in 2016, um, Oxford Immunotech came along and they, they offered us, you know a certain sum of money um to acquire us and we, we took the offer and in 2016 um, it was it was all oxford immunotech um,
0: and karen know. so you so you built out this immun lab you manage it for almost 30 years yeah. where your doctors love the work you're doing but so i think you're you're not being good enough to yourself again i think in addition to retaining the samples of previous testing and then rerunning that side by side for a future test, because many people will get a little bit better, stop the antibiotics, get sick again, get retested down the road. So you'd you have a, you know, a, an apples to apples comparison of the antibodies when you're retesting the past sample of blood versus the new sample of blood. But your testing is just also superior compared to the alternatives at the time. Meaning if I got tested through my regular local lab, your testing was much more sensitive and accurate through Imogen than it would have been through my local lab, correct?
3: That is correct, yes.
0: And now you sell it to Oxford Immunotech, which is, you know, shortly after that is when I got tested through uh, Imogen slash Oxford Immunotech. And I believe they sold it to now Quest, which is, I think, like, you know, one of the world's largest labs, correct? And now Quest is using your testing on all of their tick-borne disease tests, or am I, or am I mistaken with that?
3: No, they're, no, they're not. Um, As soon as it was sold to Quest, um, they discontinued the Lyme antibody capture. I think they even discontinued the Western blot. Um, And I think they're just doing what everybody
2: else is doing, the two-tier ELISA. Well, can I... Can I chime in here? Can you get can you hear me better first? We can, Anna. And
0: and that's really disheartening to hear because I thought they were using your testing. So to hear that they bought it out and now they just basically say, hey, we're gonna buy this great technology and this great testing that can help people and we're gonna throw it away. It's really infuriating to hear. So Anna, please please jump in and and give us more on this.
2: So I think um, a big part of that and with any other large laboratory out there, a lot of them are switching over to doing anything they can that's automated. Um, that's a big driving force behind them and it's not just Quest it's it's a whole bunch of different companies you know the large labs and the more throughput they can do the more beneficial it is for them and part of the issue is that this capture test is not something that can be automated very easily. Um, It's hard taking LDTs like this and putting it you know making it into an automated system so that's part of why they decided not to you know, continue on with that testing, because it's just too, it's too much of a personal test, you know, um, for us to perform, then it, it can't be automated. And a lot of it is as well, there's a lot of manufacturing behind it. I know Karen had talked earlier about, you know, how we had to grow the spirochetes ourselves, you have to harvest them, there's a whole manufacturing process that goes behind it. And labs like that are not going to take on manufacturing, because I think it becomes, a kind of like a liability for them where they would just purchase it from an outside company and perform that, then actually make it themselves.
0: So it really comes down to what's the cheapest, most automated, you know, way to test these samples <laughs> for people, regardless of the fact whether or not it's horribly inaccurate and people's lives are being ruined and destroyed and people are suffering in bedbound because they have a disease they don't know about is what you're telling me.
2: Yeah, exactly. And and that's also why the CDC, it they're not, they're not necessarily um, just saying only this modified two-tier testing is acceptable it you know the old way is still acceptable like ours but they just added this because i think they were getting a lot of pushback, um you know from from labs like that so now they're saying in addition to the old way we will also accept this new modified two-tier
0: testing right but also it makes me wonder why would quest buy your product from oxford immunotech when they're just going to trash it right i mean you were competition or you're you're your technology was competition. They bought it to just say, hey, we're going to buy it and destroy it because you're better than us and we're all about the dollars and cents and we want everything coming our way. Because people like Matt Sabatello were hearing about you and running it through your lab instead of Quest, right? I mean, that's what I see happening here. Well, it's because Uh, we were
3: competition. (laughs) Yeah, they bought the book of business is basically what they did. Um, And also, um, they were interested in what Oxford had to offer. When Oxford bought Imugen, they had a really good TB testing platform. Um, and I think Quest basically just wanted that. Mm. Um, you know, I don't think they cared about the the Lyme portion. Um, you know, so it, right. it, it was heart-wrenching. But
0: But the good news, Karen, for everybody listening, because I'm really, we can probably tell I'm getting really frustrated and angry here. But the good news is you are still doing testing for human beings and you're using the technology that you've, been developing and improving upon over the last three decades, and people can still utilize that service through you directly and your tick testing services, correct, Karen?
3: That is correct. Yeah, we're, we're doing the Lyme antibody capture. We are not doing um, the Western blot as it once was. We um, do have a, a kit that we use for that now. Um, we don't manufacture our own strips like we used to, but we do the antibody capture and we do the Brilliant miyamotoi.
1: So, so now- Matt, let me, let me step in here for a second, because I, I, I don't want to let Karen off the hook quite just yet with, uh, with out exploring this whole problem with these major testing labs, right? Because there's two pieces to it. And we got a piece from Anna and we have a piece from Karen, but I want to bring them together, right? So piece number one that uh, Anna gave to us is that the large labs have the tools, the political tools, the lobbyists, in order to be able to allow... For their inferior, scalable, automated tests to be deemed valid tests, and they're buying the tests that are not scalable, that are not as good, that are not um, that are that that are also uh, competitive tests but better tests, and then they're throwing them in the garbage and preventing us from being able to have access to them. So it's it's not just that they're they're uh, buying the competitive tests that are better but not scalable but they're also using their political tools to get uh the cdc and other um, administrative uh, and bureaucratic entities to allow them to use the inferior test right anna
2: right <laughs> sorry right, <I> was- <laughs> anna? <laughs>
3: that is that is that's absolutely correct yeah but it's not you know i don't want to pick on quest it's not just West, you know it's the all the big labs like lab core um, it, it's like kind of like a monopoly um, it, it's hard for any little guy um, to get into that field of testing because a lot of people like the small physicians offices they they don't know they're not as knowledgeable as you guys um, they have no clue they just order a lyme test and they don't know where it's going. They, they don't know what test is being performed and they get back a result and it says positive or negative. And that's all they want to see. So but you know, Karen,
1: let's, let's, let's stop there because I think you're making a really important point, which mm-hmm. is medical professionals are relying on the administrative and bureaucratic determinations that are re- being made by agencies like the CDC, right? They don't know a lot about this. They can't know everything about it. So they're relying on the the decisions um, and the standards that are set by the CDC, right? But the CDC standards are being influenced by the big money lobbyists that that are getting scalable solutions approved rather than the best solutions that are approved. And they're killing the best solutions by buying them.
2: Yes.
0: Let me add to that, Rich. And This is so rare that Rich and I have this back and forth. We have our own spots, but you can tell we're getting so passionate about this. We're now doing this as as a joint effort here, right? But when somebody like myself and probably most of the people listening to this podcast were sick, Lyme was brought up by a family member, in my case, my mother, not a doctor, and many people listening, it was themselves or a family member who thought Lyme, and then they get tested for Lyme disease they're using these inferior tests that Rich referred to. They're getting either a negative or a indeterminate, and they're being told they don't have Lyme disease because doctors aren't educated enough or don't, or for other reasons are saying, hey, you test a negative, there's no way you can have Lyme disease, which we know is not true. So this whole, this whole thing where you're saying you don't want to put blame on Quest or LabCorp or any of these labs it's the whole environment that is causing patients to suffer. And that's where the problem lies here, I feel, Karen, because that happened to me for for quite a while where I was testing. And in fact, when I got my labs, it was positive. The doctors didn't even know how to really properly interpret the two-tier testing. And I have the records now, and I've had other medical professionals review them, and I was positive, yet I was told I was negative. So there's so many... There's so many pieces here that are going to prevent people from getting the proper care and treatment and early detection of Lyme disease that they, they need to not get as sick as many people are that are listening to this podcast. So, Rich, I defer back to you. I just had to add my two cents in there and that. I'm sorry.
1: Well, you know what, what I what I uh, and, and Karen, I'd like to, again, talk with you about this. You know, we we we've been we've come to the conclusion that testing sucks, right? And and I think Matt and I have have been naive enough to believe that the reason the testing sucks is because our scientific community hasn't caught up to the place where we need it to be. But as it turns out, it's not that the tests suck, the science doesn't suck, it's actually the political environment in which we are now making these tests or not making these tests available, that's causing people like Matt not to have the capacity to get the early intervention that your own daughter had because she could test at your lab.
3: Yeah, it's too bad, um, but you know we can't even. We've we've tried marketing, um, going you know door to door to physicians' offices, and they they are so used to just putting the the blood samples in a bag, and checking off the right boxes and. Um, you know, just sending it to one place. Uh, and we can't seem to break through that. You know, they don't want to, okay, now this goes to Eco Laboratory and this goes to Quest and this goes, they're not looking for the best place for, you know, the best testing. Um, they're looking for whatever's easiest. And yeah, I don't know if it's because they don't have, you know, the staff, they don't have the
1: knowledge. I, I don't know what it is. Well, look, Karen, it's 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 scalable medicine, right? I mean, the insurance companies are now controlling controlling uh, medical practices. Doctors don't have enough time to um, to do all the work that they need to do. And one of the, one of the, one of the questions we ask all of our guests is, what was the difference between you going to your primary care physician and the care that you received from the primary care physician? Versus what you saw when you went, for your, went to a Lyme literate medical doctor. And almost uniformly, the difference is the amount of time that the primary care physician spent with the patient versus the amount of time that the Lyme literate medical doctor spent with them. In some cases, two and three hours the Lyme literate medical doctor spending with them during the first session when they had 10 minutes with their, with their um, primary care physician. Now, that's a problem with the medical community, but largely it's driven by insurance carriers.
3: Yes. Yeah, we didn't even mention insurance. Trying to get into that arena. (laughs) We tried it for COVID um, because we do COVID testing as well. We do the PCR test Um, and we were billing insurance companies, but it just, I, I, I guess I'm not smart enough to do that (laughs) because half the time I wouldn't get reimbursed and you know I just gave up on it and I just said you know what we'll do COVID testing but I'm not billing any insurance companies it's it's not my wheelhouse so.
1: Well you see but that's you know that's the that's the problem that you know we're trying to sort of cut through here uh, with this interview in particular but with the work that we're doing at TIC boot camp right because there are people who are suffering unnecessarily because of insurance carrier standards or bureaucratic standards or lobbyists. And it's not necessarily the science, right? I mean, and, and I'll let Matt give you his perspective, but I've been real hard on the science and the, and the slow process that, um, you know, that has been developing around testing. And it sounds to me that it really isn't the science. It sounds to me it's more like uh, it's more about politics, insurance and scalability.
3: Oh, I, I believe that. That is so true.
0: Karen, we interviewed Dr. Tim Hasted from Duke University, and he's a cancer researcher turned you know, Lyme disease tick-borne illness researcher who is doing some groundbreaking work. I think some of the best work in the world on you know, looking at Lyme disease, looking at novel targets for, for persistent Lyme disease and things like that. And one of the things he shared with us is he, like you, was working for, you know, working for universities, jumped out, built his own business and like you sold it as well. And, you know, his business was sold out. It had really great technology that could have been used in the cancer world. And what happened? The the, the people that bought it just threw it away. Right. So oftentimes it's really good technology and really good creative ideas, but they're bought out by larger competitors that are doing things in a cheaper, more efficient way and these really good tools that can help people in a large, much larger capacity are just discarded, right? So that's, that's the frustration I think we see as patients and then we end up suffering. But I do wanna circle back to Karen, your experience because now you sell Imugen, where in 2016, I believe you said you sold Imugen. And then now at some point, you know, shortly after that, you develop your, your current laboratory, ECO laboratory, which is the one we've been speaking about where you're doing tick testing services as well as testing specimen and blood of, of human samples to help get better results for people that are, that are either bit by a tick or think they may have a tick-borne illness. So what made you go from selling Imogen to then jumping back into the same arena and opening up ECO laboratories or laboratory, I'm sorry.
3: Um, so I didn't do that, that jump immediately. I stayed on with Oxford Immunotech for two years, um, which was very painful, I have to be honest. <laughs> they, they didn't understand um, the, the tick-borne diseases at all. And it was it was very difficult for me. So then they sold when they sold to Quest, um, I ended up leaving. They didn't want to keep me on any longer, probably because they, they knew that they were going to do away with all the testing. Um, so slowly they started to phase out, you know, the testing that Imogen had started doing. Um, then, you know, I, 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 I don't. I, I need to stay busy. I'm just that kind of person. So I wasn't ready to retire um, and I wanted to still work, but I didn't wanna drive 55 miles one way, which I was doing for 30 years. Um, So I I decided, well, you know what? Um, I I believe that if we um, can test ticks and um, get the disease in the very beginning before anybody gets sick, then you don't need those good tests, right? anymore. So, you know, I decided, well, the community of um, where I live, Townsend, Massachusetts, Acton, Littleton, Westford, um, Chelmsford, they all have a ton of ticks out there. And, um, you know, they, they had the need, they had a desire. And I had the desire. And I decided, well, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to test ticks. That'll be, um, it'll keep me busy. It'll be you know, be doing some good for the community and, uh, and it has expanded over the past couple of years. Um, we're getting ticks from California, Florida, Midwest. Um, so it's not just the Northeast anymore. And we have, you know, some clients in Connecticut and um, New York um, that we're doing tick testing for. So it's, um, it's the, the business is expanding and, and I feel good about it. I, I, the people that I'm meeting the people that come in and and everybody's got a story. They all had know somebody who had Lyme disease or they've had it themselves. Um, And I love meeting these people. I love sharing stories. Um, I love educating them. You know, they have a ton of questions and sometimes I'm on the phone with them for 45 minutes when they call. And we always answer the phone. It's always a person answering the phone. And, And Anna, even, you know, answers a lot of the questions, um, that they have. So it's, it's been fun. It's been, it's been rewarding and fun. And, um, you know, I want to keep doing it for as long as I can. I don't want to retire.
0: <laughs> Karen, one of the things I learned by looking at your website, tick tests.com, uh, tick tests, is that unlike Lyme testing in, testing my blood or, you know, even through, a, a, you know, a really great lab like Igenics, the testing is never perfect. So if I send my blood away, whether it's I send it to Igenix or I send a urine sample to DNA connections, or I send it to you and you run, you know, you're testing on it, or I send it to Immun when they were around, or I use Quest or LabCorp, there's still a chance, a very, un- you know, unfortunately high chance that I can result in a false negative, meaning I have Lyme disease, but I didn't test positive for it. So I thought the same would be true of ticks as well, meaning if I were bit by a tick, and I mailed it away to ECO laboratory, and you were to get my tick, and you tested my tick, that, eh, that just means 80% most likely did not have Borrelia burgdorferi, Borrelia miyamotai. But what I learned from your website is, it's definitive, meaning 100%, if you test that tick, and you come back and say, hey, it was pathogen-free, that for sure, the list of pathogens you tested it against it does not have any of those pathogens. Is that correct? Because I had had a different view in my mind before reading your website that it wasn't hundred percent accurate. So can you talk to us about that a little bit?
3: Um, The the testing we do with the ticks is a PCR. It's a molecular test. Um, And we're looking for the DNA of the pathogen itself. These ticks are pretty small. They don't have blood. It's not like they're making antibodies to this pathogen. So, um, you know, the only blood really in them is the one, the blood they've taken from you. So, um, you know, when we smush the ticks up and, um, th- the DNA or the RNA, depending upon what you're looking for, um, you know, comes can out. Sorry,
0: sorry to interrupt. We hear these words a lot, DNA and RNA. And you mentioned, depending on what you're looking for, can you just give us a little more detail, you know, and that, you don't, you don't have to give us a science lesson, but when are you looking for DNA and when are you looking for RNA? And then, you know, where do those come into play with the different pathogens that a tick can carry? Yeah.
3: So, um, Viruses, we're looking for RNA. So, in Powassan virus, we would be um, looking for the RNA. Um, anything else that we test, um, if it's not a virus, which nothing else is, um, we're looking for the DNA of the organism. And, you know, because the PCR is um, looking for the DNA or the RNA, it's a very specific um, and sensitive assay. You don't have anything that's going to compete in the testing process, um, you know, to interfere with um, being able to detect the DNA or the RNA of this pathogen. Um, So that's why, you know, the test is very specific and very sensitive. And, you know, they they do that on humans. They test whole blood, but um, for Lyme disease, whole blood is not the... the, um, the thing to test for. It, Lyme disease doesn't go, it doesn't really go into your blood. Um, it goes into your spinal fluid, it goes into your synovial fluid, but you really, you'd have to have an excellent PCR test to detect it in the blood.
0: Um, so Karen, you mentioned Powhatan virus in that you're looking for RNA if it's a virus, and you're looking for DNA if it's a bacteria, like Lyme disease, Borrelia burgdorferi. But, you know, I know Powhatan virus wasn't as common in the past, and it's still not as prevalent obviously as, as Lyme disease, but it's been all over the news these past few months as there's a major uptake of Powassan virus all throughout the Northeast and I think the country. So, you know, you do test ticks for Powassan virus, which can be really important because unlike Lyme, which can be debilitating, I think Powassan virus can actually kill you, right? It's a very, very severe virus. So what services do you offer regarding Powassan virus to give people that are listening a peace of mind if they or a loved one are bitten by a tick, and they suspect Powassan virus because it's, you know, we just keep hearing more and more about this horrible virus that's spread by a tick that can kill you and and make Lyme even worse if you already have an existing tick-borne illness like Lyme.
3: Yes, um, they just had a a case of Powassan virus up in Maine um, this week, and the the person did um, die from this Powassan virus. Um, It it is fatal, Um, not everybody, uh, you know, you can't treat it, it's a virus. So it's really just comfort care. Um, Some people do succumb to it um, and and some people don't, but it's, then the the other thing about Powassan virus, um, the tick only has to be on you for three hours to um, transmit the virus into you. Um, So- What kind
0: of ticks carry it, Karen? Is it it deer tick or lone star ticks, what kind of ticks?
3: It is the black legged deer tick that carries it. So we have panels that are set up on our our report form, our order form, and um, we, we separated the the tests out into what that tick can carry. So it doesn't make any sense, for instance, to um, test a Lone Star tick for Babesia because it's not found in the Lone Star tick. Uh, So... The tests that we do, um, like the black-legged deer tick, we we do um, one, two, three, four, five, six, eight tests for um, that tick. And Powassan is one of them. It is on that panel. Uh, for the lone star tick, we, we have three. And for the dog tick, we also have three. Um, we do a Borrelia species for the dog tick and the lone star tick that will pick up any um, the the spirochete for Lyme disease, if it happens to be there. Um, Borrelia species uh, is, it'll pick up Borrelia miyamotoi, it'll pick up B. burgdorferi, it also picks up um, uh, any other spirochetal disease. Um, And there are others uh, that we don't specifically test for, but we will pick them up in the Borrelia species.
0: So I do want to pivot over to Anna, because I have some questions regarding your website and some of your, you know, your fees. And I know Anna, we actually, you know, first met initially before, you know, we we were introduced to, to Karen. And one of the things I mentioned to you offline, Anna, is that your pricing is pretty cheap compared to some of your competitors. Well, actually pretty much all of your competitors. And I said to you, well, how can you do it so cheaply? And, you know, how do we know it's a good test? And obviously you've answered on this podcast already how we know that your testing is good. But how can you offer a comprehensive test for Lyme disease and other things for $85 when some of your competitors are doing this, you know, for, you know, well over a hundred bucks, several hundred dollars when, you know, and you guys are doing it at such a cheap rate.
2: Well, I think the answer to that starts with Karen because when she had started doing this, it wasn't really to go out and make money. It was to go out and help the community. Um, So right from the get-go, she had started the pricing to make it as affordable as possible um, and, and make it so it can reach as many people as possible. You know, you go on these websites and you can get your tick tested for you know $145 or plus in, but who, I mean, who really has that much cash laying around where they can go and get it tested for? So um, between that and then us trying to do, we started doing um, multiplexing testing. So a lot of our reagents we can save because we can test for multiple things in one well. And that helps keep the cost down as well, um, you know, but it, it really comes down to just the fact that we're not here to make money from it. It's it's to just to do what we can for as little cost. Um, you know, we, we we actually had a client come in today where we recognize the name. They dropped off their tick and we recognize the name. And, and, you know, I said, hey, mom, this, you know, so-and-so dropped off another tick today. And she goes, oh, my goodness, I feel so bad for them take $10 off of the price because they're just here all the time, you know? And uh, So I think a lot of it comes down to just comes down to compassion really for the testing prices. Um, And it's not just for tick testing. You know, when we started doing COVID testing, you you're doing the same thing when you go out there and you have to pay out of pocket and you're looking at 150 bucks for just that, where, you know, we were offering it, we, we focused on first responders and, and people who couldn't really afford it. And, you know, we were able to offer it for $60 for some people, And you know, just because it's, it's a needed thing and, and we're not here to, to make the money off of it. It's just the need that's there. And we want to help the community any way we can.
0: So, and I, you know, let's just say, you know, everybody who's listening to this podcast, mostly everybody listening to the podcast knows that Rich is just a major tick magnet. He's going to get mad. He's going to get defensive (laughs) over this because he thinks he's not a tick magnet. And he thinks that he's just activating his RAS receptors, like he said on Instagram today. But, you know, the polls are pretty telling that 100% of the polls on Instagram today said that Rich is a tick magnet and it's not the RAS receptor. So he'll he'll speak to that in a second. (laughs) But if, if somebody is bit by a tick and they don't know what kind of tick it is, can they contact you and send it in? And then you can then run the appropriate test based on the identification of the tick that you do on your end? Because I'm not going to be able to properly identify a tick if I'm just, you know, an average Joe. And you know, how does that work from a, from a, I'm going to go to your website and buy a service, but I don't know what my tick is. How do I know what service to buy if all of your, your bundles are specific to a particular type of tick, knowing what kind of pathogens that tick may or may not have?
2: Sure. So on our, on our submission form, you know, you're able to check off whichever panel you want, but there's also a box on there you can check off that says, you know, please choose the panel based on my tick ID. So you know, we'll you can send it in. We see that checked off. We'll identify it, and we will choose the appropriate panel for you. Um, we also have clients who, you know, they'll call us up and and ask, you know what do I do? And a lot of times they'll take a photo and they can email it to us as well. And we'll, we'll look at that photo on our computer to the best that we can and, and give them an identification over the phone right there too. So there's many ways. I mean, we personalize everything. So just, you know, if it's, if it's, that's, what's on our form, we can do that. If not, you know, we'll personalize it however
0: we can for these people. Well, it's great. I know Rich is going to be utilizing your services very soon if he wants to speak on this, because he had three ticks just on, you know, between himself, his dog, and a friend this past weekend in two days. So, Rich, do you want to ask any questions on that?
1: Well, yeah, I, t- I just want to talk to the line pioneer, Anna, who, uh, who can give us a <laughs> proper context for Matt's goofy observation about me being a tick magnet. Um, as one of the leading experts in the world and who's been a part of this community for um, a long time, even though you're very young, um, Karen, do you think there's something, uh, to Matt's observation that I'm a tick magnet, or do you think it's possible that tick awareness is an active, um, process and by, by being active in, in both checking for ticks and being aware of ticks that I just see them. You know, I, I, I saw a tick on a friend and I took a video of it. I took found a tick on my dog. Unfortunately, she bit me when I was trying to take it off. But I found it. I found a tick on myself because I'm constantly checking. And it's actually, um, you know, when you when you're active in this process of being tick aware, um, your your reticular activation system is triggered, and you start to get through all of the um, all of the different um, hacking that ticks do, uh, and I find them.
0: So, what do you think, Anna? you mean Karen, Rich? You're you have vine yeah. You said you said Anna then Karen, Karen. No, added. no, no. no, no, this no, no this is who's going to answer well. this question, Rich? Come on.
3: Well, this is Karen. Um, I, Thank I, you, Karen. <laughs> I,
1: I want I want the line pioneer. Okay,
3: um, I, I like the um, the phrase tick aware, and more and more people are becoming tick aware, which is great. Um, I I do think though that you need to move. Um, because you have too many ticks in your area. And, and I know some people in New York, I know you're, you're, you're from New York and I, I know a lot of people on Long Island especially um, who can't even mow their lawn. Um, they go out and mow their lawn and then they come in covered with ticks. And um, it's, it's bad in certain areas, other areas not so bad. So, you know, I think it depends on where you live.
1: Yeah, so I think geography does matter, but unfortunately, as our climate changes and you know, and more places become habitable for ticks, we're all going to be having this problem. Yes, we on Long Island um, certainly have an infestation issue that may not be as um, as severe as it is in the Midwest, uh, for example. We 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 have many more problems, uh, but. But the truth is, the truth is, uh, I, I don't think you can move away from ticks. I think we have to learn how to coexist with ticks. And I think part of that process is being aware that they exist. Part of the process is being aware um, of what you need to do to avoid them and to check yourself. And part of it is to be aware of the tools that are available to you, like your lab, that can test for um, for diseases, so we can take the steps to intervene early and stay healthy the way your daughter Anna was able to. So I think I think if you go through the the process that we just outlined together, we can coexist with ticks and not get sick.
3: Right. I was just joking about moving. Um, but I know you are. <laughs> um, yeah, the the ticks are moving. Um, we're seeing more and more uh, lone star ticks up up. In Massachusetts, um, especially Rhode Island and Massachusetts, Connecticut. Um, and you're right, they do move and everything, and the diseases are all moving with the ticks. Um, and, you know, just to, I don't think we touched on this a lot, but people can get co infections from one tick. Um, we have ticks that come in, and there, some, some ticks are positive for, you know, four or five uh, pathogens. Um, And if they're positive for those pathogens, uh, you can bet on you also being positive for those pathogens if the tick was on you long enough. So, um, you know, not only do you have to be aware of Lyme disease, you have to be aware of all the tick-borne illnesses that are around. Uh, And you can't just, you know, Check off the box, Lyme disease. You know, B burgdorferi Lyme disease testing. When your tick could carry some other of these things, you have to be so aware of, um, you know, all of these tick borne illnesses. Because uh, it doesn't do you any good if you, your tick, um, you know, if you if it you're not testing for babesia. Babesia is not treatable um, with, you know, the um, doxycycline. You need other treatment for that. Uh, So you really do need need to be tested for multiple pathogens.
1: And and your tick needs to be tested for multiple pathogens when you are checking often, finding them and sending them into an lab like yours, right? So Anna, talk to us about how our folks could get ticks to you and what the turnaround time would be after uh, the tick arrives to your lab.
2: Um, sure. So there's multiple ways you can get the tick to us. So you can send it in the mail. You can send it UPS, FedEx. Um, we accept walk-ins. A lot of people will walk them in themselves. Um, you're able to access our door 24/7. So you know we have a, a slot in our door. People can pass them through on hours when we're no longer working. Um, we advertise that we have a 24 to 48 hour turnaround time for our testing, um, but Usually we, honestly, we run them same day as best we can. Um, So any tick, we for instance, any tick we received this morning, we had reported out before we left work that day. Um, So we try to get it as quickly as possible to these people.
1: So Anna, the last question I wanna ask you is, um, what is gonna be on the report that we would get from you when we're we're sending a tick to you and what actionable information um, uh, can we use to keep ourselves healthy?
2: So, on the report you get back from us it will list you know how how the panels are listed on our submission form we we list everything individually with a very simple positive or negative right next to whatever that is um so it's very user friendly you know it's easy to read um and and it's we will send it back to these people through a pdf on an email they'll receive that so they can send that off to their physician um and a lot of times, you know, it will include the um, the species, the the stage that it's in, um, male or female of whatever this tick is that was submitted to us. Um, so they'll have all that information available on the on the result for them. For them.
1: So, folks, we we can't thank you enough for taking uh, so much time out of your busy schedule and your busy lives. It's always a great honor to uh, interview a Lyme pioneer, um, and it's also a you know great honor for us to. Uh, interview the daughter of the line pioneer and, <laughs> and Karen's the, daughter. <laughs> that's right. Uh, and and um, again, we we can't thank the two of you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to share, you know, this really brilliant uh, information with uh, the followers of Tick Boot Camp.
2: Well, thank you for taking the time. It was great. Yes, thank you. Um,
3: one more thing before we go, I just want to mention that we are CLIA certified lab. Um, so most other, uh, tick, um, tick testing laboratories, they don't have the CLIA certification and, um, you know, it, it, a lot goes into having a CLIA lab. Um, you have to do things a certain way you, you get inspected, um, by, you know, the state officials. Um, so, it, uh, it, it is different and it is notable. So I just want to mention that.
1: Well, thank you, Karen. That's really another important piece of information for our folks when deciding which of the uh, tick testing labs they're going to uh, select to work with. And we're certainly going to urge the folks in the tick bootcamp community to uh, consider eco-laboratory for all of their tick testing uh,
0: needs. So thank you very much.
3: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to our tick bootcamp interview with our guests, Karen Weeks and Anna Roberts. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Karen and Anna, please visit them on their website at ticktests.com. That's T I C K T E S T S.com. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of our tick bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third tick bootcamp has created a tick by blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcampcom slash bite to view the blueprint. Fourth, Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on your podcast platform of choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of over 250 episodes for specific keywords, subscribe to our email list, or share feedback with us, please visit our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.